Hey everyone, I'm Chad Watson, one of the elders here at Church in the Square. Uh, if you are just joining us for the first time over these uh, Zoom calls, um, we have been in the book of Romans uh, now on our 13th Sunday. We're going to be in Romans chapter 1, verses 18 through 21 this week. Uh, just a brief overview and introduction, if you will, um, is Romans is a, a letter written by the Apostle Paul. It's a letter written to churches in Rome. And so far, the, the climax of Romans chapter 1 uh, comes through in verse 16. Paul has given his introduction. He stated who he is and what he's about. And then verse 16, he says, I'm not ashamed of the gospel. Why? Because it's the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. In other words, Paul is saying like, I have much to be thankful for because I can remember my own Damascus Road experience where Jesus Christ would appear before me on the road and transform me completely inside and out. And so I'm not ashamed of this incredible news. And then last week we were in the next, the following verse, verse 17, that the gospel, the one being the power of God for salvation, everyone who believes also reveals the righteousness of God. And because God reveals his righteousness in his gospel, those who have faith in Christ, that language of from faith for faith, God gives it in order that we could actually have faith in his son, Jesus Christ. Those who have faith in Christ Jesus will live. You'll, you'll be restored. You'll be a, a united people. Um, and so now... We're in verses 18 through 21, Romans 1, 18 through 21. Let's turn to that now and let's, let's read together. Uh, beginning in verse 18, here we go. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. For what can be known about God is plain to them because God has shown it to them. For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made. So they are without excuse. For although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him, but they became futile in their thinking and their foolish hearts were darkened. This is the all-powerful, inerrant, holy word of the Lord. And we all say over and over, thanks be to God for his word. Uh, let me pray for us and then we will continue on back here in verse 18 of Romans 1. Lord, thank you for your word. Um, often if I'm being honest before you, God, and also before my brothers and sisters and my friends listening in uh, today, is um, I believe that your word is just meant for knowledge and that it's not truly living and active. Help me believe it again as you speak to us. Um, help me um, to not fear uh, in the things that I may not say completely right that, that ruins this whole thing. Lord, help me to not fear and know that you, by the power of your Spirit, are working on all of us. Help me to believe that this is not something I'm speaking to other people. Instead, this is something we are hearing together collectively from you, Lord. Not because it's my voice, but because your word is speaking loud and clear. Thank you for your son, our rescuer. Thank you for the Holy Spirit who convicts. And it's in the name of Jesus we pray. Amen. Uh, the wrath of God. That is not a popular theme. That's certainly not a popular theme in the Bible. But check this out. The Old Testament alone, wrath occurs both directly and indirectly uh, in the word or at least in the theme of God's wrath on display. It occurs about 600 times. That's no small number. That's just the Old Testament. In the New Testament, we see it a lot in the book of Romans, but we see it all throughout. We'll see it all the way to the end, to Revelation about God's eternal wrath or God's wrath to come, his final judgment. Um, and so um, Paul is just beginning here saying the wrath of God uh, is revealed 
And, and then all the way up through Romans chapter three around verse 20 is where we will have a better understanding of what does that mean that the wrath of God is revealed and why if Christ has come, are we talking about wrath now? Because didn't he deliver us from the wrath of God? Why is Paul speaking about this? Um, and some of the questions that arise for many of us when we think about the wrath of God, or at least if we're uncomfortable with the wrath of God, is if God so loved the world, like John 3.16, that he gave his one and only son, why is wrath still a thing? Uh, because... God's supposed to be a God of love. Maybe in the Old Testament he was wrathful, but isn't it in the New Testament that God's just supposed to be the loving God? Um, or uh, maybe if we're in Christ, is there a need to acknowledge uh, God's wrath anymore? Because we could say in 1 John, perfect love coming from Christ cast out fear. And well, wrath makes me really fearful. Well, today is an opportunity for us to ask ourselves, why is it that we maybe are okay with God's wrath on certain terms? Why are we okay with um, God's wrath as the people of God, especially against injustices? You know, we, we are for that. We say God's wrath will come against all wrongdoings. Um, he will not tolerate uh, oppression of anyone created in his image. Um, so we like that. Um, but wrath against us, revealed against me, revealed against you personally. I don't know about that. I, I like the idea of being delivered. And so we're gonna see the full scope of, of, God's, of God's wrath. When we began in the book of Romans, um, we learned that this letter is, is Paul's largest epistle uh, written to the churches in Rome. Once again, it addresses uh, a, a theme, though, the, the theme that comes up over and over in the book of Romans is a conflict, a conflict, uh, a Jewish-Gentile conflict. It's not an unfamiliar theme because if you were at Church in the Square during our time the, in the book of Acts, the last third of Acts, there it was pretty dicey. Things were getting bad um, for Paul. Um, he was thrown in prison, and it and it always had to do with this conflict between uh, Jews and Gentiles. And who deserves God's favor? Who are the true covenant people of God? Who is God really going to deliver? Uh, what do we have to do to be considered God's covenant people? Um, and so Paul states his intention in Romans 1, his longing uh, to come to Rome. He's obviously not there because he's writing a letter to the churches in Rome. He says, I've been prevented. Uh, but he, he longs to come there in order that he might reap some harvest among the people, among you, as well as among the rest of the Gentiles. You know, it's interesting. We'll, we'll see uh, the way Paul writes here is that um, he's always addressing everyone. And of course, God in his, um, in the Spirit's, uh, illumination and the Spirit's uh, work for the Word of God to be for people of all places, all times, uh, is that certainly this is addressing us here and now, but as Paul is writing to folks, he will do this thing where he'll speak about the Gentiles one moment, he'll speak about the Jews another moment, all the while addressing everyone. He'll say, okay, no one's off the hook when we talk about God's wrath. That's what we'll get to in a moment is he begins addressing uh, what's going on, particularly with people who aren't uh, of, of Jewish descent, um, or at least they, they are not following the Hebrew God. They're considered irreligious. Um, people who, who have not followed the way the Jews have. They've not obeyed uh, laws and rituals. And so um, Paul is, is, is laying all this out. He writes that in verse 14 of Romans 1 that he is under obligation to both Greeks and to barbarians, both to the wise and to the foolish. And, and then comes the gospel. In verse 16, Paul said he's, he's not ashamed of it because this uh, wonderful definition emerges because it's the power of God for salvation and because in the gospel, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith. As we come now to verse 18, though, uh, the because changes. There's that word for that um, you may have heard last Sunday 
uh, it's the Greek word gar, um, it, it, for, it, it translates usually to because, but, but what is not happening here is Paul is now um, not going, well, I just told you about righteousness, let me tell you about wrath. Instead, it's, it's almost as if Paul is saying, let me take you deeper now that I'm telling you about the righteousness of God, that God is a righteous judge, that he is completely, wholly righteous. Now let's understand righteous wrath. It's a part of his righteousness, a part of his righteous nature, a part of his holiness. So wrath is not juxtaposed. Uh, instead, wrath and righteousness are together in order for God to be fully righteous he also must exercise his wrath. And so he's defining a fuller scope of God's righteousness when he says the wrath of God is revealed. So maybe that's a good place to start is where, uh, how do we define God's wrath? Where might we find biblically this explanation of wrath? Let me quickly take us uh, to a few places. Let's begin in the Old Testament. Um, it's always good to go back to the beginning. Let's go back to the book of Genesis for a moment. Um, turn with me to Genesis chapter 3. I'm going to turn uh, as you turn. Genesis chapter 3, uh, the fall has occurred. This is where uh, God has told his, uh, his man and woman, his individuals created in his image, Adam and Eve, um, you shall not eat of this particular tree. And the story goes on that they, they do. The evil one has tempted them to do so. And now here is the response. God responds. His wrath is being revealed, in other words. So this will give us a beginning definition of God's wrath. His wrath is reve being revealed in this way. God responds in Genesis 3, verse 14. The Lord speaks to the serpent first. Because you have done this, God said to the serpent, cursed are you above all livestock and above all beasts of the field. On your belly you shall go, and dust you shall eat all the days of your life. I will put enmity between you and the woman, and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel. That's a beautiful picture for us, actually. And then in verse 16, to the woman, he says, I will surely multiply your pain and childbearing. In pain you shall bring forth uh, children. Your desire shall be for your husband, and he shall rule over you. And then to Adam, he says, verse 17, Because you have listened to the voice of your wife, and you have eaten of the tree of which I commanded you, you shall not eat of it. Cursed is the ground because of you. In pain you shall eat of it all the days of your life. In other words, it's going to be hard work. Work's always been something there, but now it's going to be tough because thorns and thistles in verse 18, it shall bring forth for you and you shall eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your face, you shall eat bread till you return to the ground for out of it you were taken for you are dust into dust you shall return. So it's interesting, God's wrath is revealed in a few ways. It's revealed against the evil one. Uh, here's what I'm going to do to you. It's revealed against the woman. It's revealed against the man. No one escapes it. Everyone involved receives God's wrath. And God's wrath ultimately is that death is a reality now. When he ends there, for uh, you are taken from the ground, for you are dust, and now to dust you will return, because God's intention was that mankind would enjoy, would worship him perfectly and enjoy all of his, uh, everything he's given them, living obediently. And they break uh, his rule, and now the fall has entered. In fact, for all of us, we all now take on the sin of the first man, the, the sin of Adam. Um, we could go on in Genesis, Genesis 4. Uh, Cain and Abel. Cain ends up killing his brother. And then verses 11 and 12 in, in chapter uh, 4, Genesis chapter 4. And now you are cursed from the ground, which has opened its mouth to receive your brother's blood from your hand. When you work the ground, it shall no longer yield you, uh, to you its strength. You will be a fugitive and a wanderer on earth. So 
another exercise of God's wrath. Uh, we can fast forward just a, a few chapters, Genesis uh, chapter six, the, the flood, the great flood. Um, people have just been utterly rebellious. It's not new, it's a reality. It shows us again that sin has entered the world and all of mankind has become sinful. No one is righteous, no, not one. It takes us back to Romans chapter three. When the Lord sees the wickedness of mankind, verse 13, this is his response. And he's speaking to Noah here. And God said to Noah, I have determined to make an end of all flesh. For the earth is filled with violence through them. Behold, I will destroy them with the earth. And then God goes on to tell Noah, I'm going to spare you, make an ark. Here's how I'm going to do it. So he, his wrath is on display and simultaneously his, redump, his redemptive love is on display. I'm going to preserve some of you. Uh, I'm going to display both. Uh, the psalmist, Psalm 78, you don't have to turn there, but you can just listen to this language of God and his wrath. For they provoke, provoked him to anger with their high places. Once again, idolatry. Uh, they moved him to jealousy with their idols. Uh, the same thing we hear uh, in, in the book of Deuteronomy 32. People stirred him to jealousy with strange gods, with abominations they provoked him to anger. And then the Lord speaks, his response is, they have made me jealous with what is no God. They've made me jealous with foolishness. They provoked me to anger with their idols, for a fire is kindled by my anger. What's interesting in this language is, is God never calls himself directly wrath. He calls himself love. He has that title, God is love. He never says he is wrath, but he is wrathful. I think the closest we come to it in defining wrath is we do see that God is um, this unrelenting fire or a consuming fire. So he's displaying his wrath. I think this begins to help uh, define wrath for us as we think about um, Romans chapter 1 where Paul talks about the wrath of God being revealed. A few other places you may note if you just want to continue to define wrath, God's wrath on display against idolatry, against his people who continue to rebel against him is uh, Jeremiah the prophet often talks, he, he, he throws out really bad news. It's He's not prophesying great stuff. He's saying, we are extremely idolatrous and this is not good. God will not overlook this. He will not turn away from this. In fact, he will deal with it. Um, the book of Ezekiel, it is not going well there. There's a lot of language around God's cup of wrath that uh, the people of God will drink it, that they will face God's wrath. And, and throughout the Old Testament, God's wrath shows us um, how he exercises it. He exercises it in a way that he would certainly deliver Israel. He delivers them from exile in Egypt. But what do they do? They go through these cycles of turning back to idols. They build a golden calf. They believe they have their their own, uh, their best interest in mind and that God doesn't truly care for them. And so when they try to go to battle that God tells them not to, when they try to do things that God doesn't tell them, when he tells them, wait, listen for me, uh, God allows enemies to oppress them. That's God's wrath on display. But there's also a, a wrath of God that that is for God's people. There's a wrath of God where um, God's enemies or the enemies of Israel in the Old Testament where God promises Israel, I won't abandon you. In fact, I'm, I'm telling you to go against them. Trust me, you will go to battle with them and I will deliver you from their hands. Um, they may have oppressed you for a long time, but that won't last for eternity. I'm going to give you this land of Canaan that I promised you. And so we see God's wrath at work against Injustice and God's wrath at work against uh, when his very own people would sin against them. So Paul gets to something here in Romans 1 is it's revealed against everyone and it's revealed against all kind of all kinds of evil, uh, not just when we sin against God, but when it, even when those 
sin against uh, God's people. And so Paul's going to give us a, an incredible picture of God's wrath, but we're just scratching the surface. Um, so there's a brief uh, definition for us. One of the things that's um, important for us to think about in God's wrath is it is completely different um, from ours. I, I think that's why we often don't like to speak of God's wrath because it usually reveals, um, this is what this text reveals for us too here in Romans 1, is we want to suppress the truth about God and his righteousness that he is a righteous judge and that he can be wrathful and completely good simultaneously. But we don't like it because we like to put our nature on God. Um, we can't put our sin nature on God. God puts his characteristics on us. He marks us or he makes us in his image and that we can live like him, but he does not live like us, a fallen creature. So our wrath is different. Yes, we can be righteously anger, angry at, at things. We can be angry against sin. We say that's not right. That's against our Lord. And so we, are, we grieve that and we are angry and we speak against it in an anger that says we will, we will defend what is right. We will defend the truth. Or we're angry against injustice when we see um, things that are going on right here and right now uh, in our nation. When our uh, black neighbors, our black brothers and sisters are continuing uh, to speak out of this is how oppression has affected us for so long. This is not new. And we see uh, the death of George Floyd, of uh, Breonna Taylor, and the list goes on. As we know, um, we can be righteously angry against those things. Uh, but we also have a side of anger that's reactionary. Um, God reacts to, to sin, right? He is reactionary, but not in a way where he's ever caught off guard. His wrath is stable. In other words, um, we can look at God's wrath as consistently being against sin, not one where he goes, uh-oh, I'm caught off guard and now I've got to uphold my honor. No, God's honor is upheld. He is judicially righteous. He's always been standing holy and righteous. He's never had to defend himself, in other words. Um, and I think that's helpful for us to see the difference between maybe uh, why we're fearful of talking about God's wrath is, is it probably reveals that we, um, not probably, it most certainly reveals that we don't like God's wrath because we think about it in the same way we either have it exercised against us. Some of you listening this morning have had wrath exercised against you through abuse, uh, through uh, someone just wronging you and saying horrible things against you that aren't true. Um, that is not God's wrath. His wrath is not a, a cruel immorality that says, I'm trying to stick it to you because I don't like you. God's wrath is different because it's, I'm revealing my wrath against you because I need you to see the depth of my mercy. And that's where we will get to. Um, and so we could define what I'm talking about here is God's impassibility. In other words, God is emotional. Uh, but he is not a reactionary fly-off-the-handle God. He shares the same emotions we have. He is grieved over things that are um, heart-sickening, that things that make us sad. Uh, there, there's language about um, God's anger being provoked, and uh, it's, it's that um, all those things emotionally don't affect him in a sin state. Our emotions are distorted. They, they're, they're affected by the fall. And so we fly off the handle in unsinful ways or we, um, we just lose focus of what's true um, by so much grief sometimes. You've, you've probably heard it said or experienced in your own in, in grief, maybe being triggered by something where it's just like, I can't even... Think clearly. Um, God is not like that. He is completely clear in thought. He is. Uh, he understands it all. He sees it all, and he has a completely perfect, righteous uh, purpose 
for his wrath being displayed. So let's, let's keep on now. We've explored a definition. We've explored Old Testament language so far. Um, it's important for us to, though, not divide the Old Testament and the New Testament as, oh, well, there's a, a definition of God's wrath. But now the New Testament just gives us love because Jesus has come and, you know, God's all soft now and he doesn't care and like his wrath is, 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 is gone because Jesus took it on. We'll get to that in a little bit. It's true, Jesus has borne God's wrath on the cross, but God is simultaneously wrathful and loving and the things don't have to divide. And, and we don't need to do that with the Old Testament and the New Testament either. Creation, fall, redemption, and final restoration are all glued together. And so the God of the Old Testament is the same God of the New Testament. Um, maybe one way I find helpful um, uh, one professor, uh, D.A. Carson, he's just up the road at Trinity, um, he talks about um, understanding, yes, look at the Old Testament, we see God's wrath on display oftentimes in things where we go, whoa, that's, that's hard, that's heavy that Israel would face those things, that, that um, God would use his wrath on display through uh, famine sometimes, through uh, war. He would allow um, Israel to be uh, attacked by um, other nations by pagan nations, um, but his wrath is actually ratcheted up in the New Testament. It's it's not that it's subsiding. It's actually um, different in the way that he dealt with Old Testament Israel. Not that God is different himself, but check out how he deals differently. We just said his wrath is often exercised through famine and war. In the New Testament, uh, we're given a, another picture of God's wrath being revealed. And this is what Paul would get at, is it's currently revealed against all ungodliness and wickedness, but also it's going to be finally revealed. In other words, there's a wrath to come. Uh, hear this from Revelation 6, uh, verses 15 and 17. You don't have to turn there, but you can just listen to it. Revelation 6, uh, the kings of the earth and great ones and the generals and the rich and powerful and everyone, slave and free, they hid themselves among the rocks. And this is what they cried out as they were hiding among the rocks. Now this is a vision given to John, but this is a vision of God's final judgment, his wrath. This is what they said. Fall on us and hide us from the face of him who is seated on the throne. And from what? And from the wrath of the Lamb for the great day of their wrath has come, and who can stand? God's wrath will be exercised in his final judgment. It will be an ongoing, eternal wrath. This is, this is uh, very sobering to think about God's wrath in this way. It has come, but this is the difference is uh, Israel has not faced this yet. Those who would have died in Israel, uh, this is something to come when, when there is a final uh, judgment is, is that hell itself will be in eternal separation from God. And it won't just be separation and darkness. It, the Bible says it will be torment. We don't like that. Um, our neighbors, when they hear that we are followers of Jesus often go, well, what do you believe about hell? Do you really believe it's true? Do you really believe God would send someone separated from him if he's truly loving to a place of torment? Do you really believe it's literally a fiery place of torment? And Jesus has a lot to say about eternal torment, about gnashing of teeth, about those who would long for just a brief moment of escape and there will be a time God's wrath fully revealed where you cannot escape it. And so wrath is something that God is offering escape from, but there will be a day coming where there will be a, 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 no escape. There will be a finality. So God's wrath revealed back here in verse 18 Paul is addressing uh, Gentiles here. He's addressing, he's going to address the Jews. It's kind of like Paul has this 
this little ninja skill where he's like, oh, you thought you were going to escape it. I've got something for you too. I've got something for all of us. But he's addressing the Gentiles because this is why the conflict was going on. The Jews uh, of the day were saying, look at all this, these irreligious people. They have uh, all kinds of idols built up. Um, they have this desire uh, to worship knowledge instead of the one true God. Uh, they have all these things uh, where they participate in feast, sacrifice to idols. Um, what are we going to do with, with all of this? Um, and uh, Paul is saying, well, listen, we need to address that, uh, but we need to address you too. And so this is like this beginning is no one can escape God's wrath, but let's address those who are irreligious those who, as this text would go on, suppress the truth. Not necessarily those who go, oh, I believe in, in God. I don't have an issue with that. The Jews didn't have an issue with believing in a God who reigns and rules and, and a God who uh, they were supposed to be obedient to. It was just they were going to be obedient in ways that they actually weren't being obedient because no one could uphold the law perfectly as they often tried to do. And so uh, what is revealed, wrath revealed, God doesn't reveal a portion of himself. That's the first thing we need to get here in verse 18. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven. God reveals himself. He discloses all of himself. And that's why it's important to not dissect this or, or separate this from verse 17. It's, it's that, let me tell you about God's righteousness. His righteousness is, is revealed in the gospel, and the gospel continues to, to reveal more of what God's righteousness is like. It reveals uh, that he will not tolerate an ounce of sin. Um, there are so many things that are mysterious about God, so many things that our finite minds cannot comprehend completely about God, but we still get all of God when we get God, not just a piece. And so we get his, his holiness and we get his wrath that is underneath God's holiness. We get um, his love and his wrath, his mercy, his grace on display all together. It doesn't separate a completely righteous God we get. Uh, we get a God who cannot and will not be indifferent towards sin. So that's the first thing we see in verse 18 here. What is God's wrath revealed against? It's revealed against all ungodliness and all unrighteousness. I like the NIV actually here uh, in this, um, in, in verse 18, or actually in this chunk here, because the NIV uses against all ungodliness and wickedness. Now it's helpful for the SV too because unrighteousness helps us see that God is holy, W-H-O-L-O-Y, righteous. He's completely a righteous judge. He will not look on sin and be indifferent towards it. Um, but, but I like the idea of wickedness because it helps us unpack ungodliness and wickedness as two different things, although it's all ungodly. Ungodliness being his wrath is revealed against those who who uh, say, I don't really believe there's a God who cares. I don't really believe there's a God who, um, who has all this chaos and order. Um, I have my own gods. I have my own things I bow to. So God, if we go back to the Ten Commandments, the Decalogue in Exodus 20, he will not stand for worship of anything else. You shall have no other gods before me. There is no other God. I am the one true triune God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. But wrath of God is also revealed against wickedness. So not just sin against God. The wrath of God is revealed against sin against others. And I think that's where wickedness comes into play. Whether we talk about, as Romans 1 will continue, sexual immorality, or whether we talk about uh, physical pain against someone else, wronging someone with our, our words, the wrath of God is against that too. That's what makes God's wrath something really incredible. It's not what makes it all negative. The positive of God's wrath, which I guess we could actually argue God's wrath is wholly positive because it's completely righteous. 
But if we just want to take humanistic terms here and say, well, wrath of God is hard to swallow because it means that there's really something hard lying ahead. Wrath of God is something good because it means God will not, will not tolerate sin against others. That's an indictment on us, but it's also an indictment on those who come against his people. I will not tolerate you harming anyone because everyone is made in my image is essentially what God lays out. Uh, the political and social climate here in the Roman Empire is that, um, is that there would be uh, kind of like, you're the irreligious group, we're the religious group, let's like, as religious people, let's keep the peace, let's follow uh, Roman leaders, let's get in really good. The Pharisees were really good about this, saying the right things, doing the right things publicly, and yet their hearts were so far from God. And so they were looking at the Gentiles going, you don't know anything, so you must be completely foolish. Well, Paul's going to explain, yeah, you're foolish because actually God has revealed himself to you. Uh, and so this goes on in verse 19, for what can be known about God is plain to them. In other words, uh, it's, it can be obvious because God has shown it to them. Well, what has God shown? Um, we went to Psalm 19, I think last week, uh, the heavens declare the glory of God and the sky proclaims his handiwork. What God has made reveals uh, that he is God. No one is with excuse everyone it has been the way god has made us in his image in other words it's been wired on our hearts that there is a god that there is a creator you know what's interesting is it would be sufficient enough if if god just said i'm revealing myself in creation and nothing else it would be good enough for for us to say, you are worthy, Lord. You just rule and you made it all. So therefore, you are worthy. We must bow down to you and you alone. That's enough to put an indictment on us if we bow down to anything else. But God has shown so much more. The Word made flesh. He, he has shown himself uh, in Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ being fully man and fully God. Uh, so we're also without excuse in that the rescue plan has been on display. It's been declared. Um, and so we will find this unpacked a little more when we get to Romans 10. Uh, but God is so kind to reveal so much about himself. He didn't just reveal himself in creation, but Paul is getting to something important, is that creation alone is enough for God's wrath to be revealed against us. If you suppress the truth that there is a God, creation alone is enough to indict uh, that you cannot escape God's wrath. You must turn to God. For In verse 20, for his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in things that have been made. So they are without excuse. And then we go down uh, to verse 21, for although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him. Yeah, that's interesting. That, that reveals more about this suppression. And aren't we the same way as the very people Paul is addressing? In fact, that's why God's word addresses us today. Um, we, uh, we think about this um, in John chapter 3. Uh, John chapter 3, whoever believes in him, this is verse 18, in him being Jesus, is not condemned. If you believe in Jesus Christ, you won't be condemned. God's wrath is revealed, but believe in my son. But whoever does not believe is condemned already because he has not believed in the name of the only son of God. And this is the judgment. The light has come into the world and the people love the darkness rather than the light because their works are evil. For everyone who does wicked things hates the light and does not come to the light lest his works should be exposed. In other words, unless he gets found out. But whoever does what is true comes to the light 
So whoever does what is true says, I will expose myself. I will expose the reality that I have suppressed the truth. I won't lean towards being futile in mind and foolish so that it may be clearly seen that his works have been carried out in God. And that's what's interesting about this idea of becoming futile in their thinking and in their foolish hearts being darkened is although they knew God, I think what's interesting about this is we do this, the very same thing. We, we know what's right. Even if we are followers of Jesus, we take our sin and we go, although I know it's sinful, if I don't think it's as bad as what I see on display, in other words, one of the things that can be a massive distraction of exposing our own sin it's not a distraction in that, that it's a reality for our world. It's a reality for us to speak truth into, to love on our neighbors, um, to be righteously angry again. But, but one of the distractions that the evil one can use is we look at the sin of those around us. We look at the sin of injustice on display right now. And we go, that is so wrong. God's wrath be revealed against that, Lord rain your wrath down on that, deal with that. And then we go, but don't deal with mine. In other words, let me suppress the truth that you really care about my sin. Don't deal with the little things, or at least what I make to be little things. We become futile in our thinking. We, we go, I know it's evil, but I don't want that to be exposed because I'm too busy trying to expose the other things around me. I'm too busy exposing the sin of my brother or the sins of those who don't know Jesus. Therefore, let me hide what's going on. Let me suppress what's true of me. God's wrath couldn't be revealed against these little things. God's wrath, friends, brothers and sisters, is being revealed against our own sin. And that's a scary thought. We're going to get to the good news in a moment. So it's revealing something about us. As we get towards the end of our time here, let, let's, let's talk about that a little bit more, is why do we like to suppress the truth? Yes, the Gentiles wanted to suppress the truth because they said, hey, we've got, and this is what Paul will lay out more, we've got these things that we really enjoy doing. And if life is good, why would we need to turn away from those things? Yes, our hearts are telling us this is not the way the world should be. It's broken. But I don't want to turn from that sin. I don't want to change that sin until you become futile in your thinking and foolish in your darkened heart. In other words, God finally said, you want to live this way? I'll turn you over to it. I'll let your heart be so darkened and callous that you won't even see it for what you initially saw it for. And we need to think about that in our own lives, is that the wrath of God is revealed against our own sin patterns. Are there things that we hold back? And we go, I don't think God really cares about my sin in this way. Therefore, I'll continue to suppress it. God's wrath is revealed against this. Think about the turn here for us, though. Uh, this is a beautiful Trinitarian turn. God is holy. He will not have sin in his presence. So God the Father, he is holy. Christ the Son is completely holy too, and yet does not withdraw from sin. God the Father will not have sin in his presence but look at God incarnate, Jesus Christ. He takes on sin. He so many times came close. He touched, he came near to the sinner, the, the, oh, the, the ones regarded as the worst of society, the tax collectors, the prostitutes. Um, God, uh, Jesus Christ, does not withdraw from sin. He comes near to the sinner. And then think about the Holy Spirit. He's completely holy, and yet he does not, uh, he does not ex ignore sin, but yet he is faithful to reveal the weight of sin. He convicts. It's the power of the Holy Spirit to turn us to Christ. He is regenerating the heart. And so this is the good news. God has revealed his wrath against all godliness and wickedness. 
But God in revealing his wrath is actually doing a very merciful thing. I have a wrath to come, God is showing. I have a wrath that is revealed now, but my wrath is revealed now so that you can escape the wrath to come so that you would not be turned over in utter blindness. I'm giving you a rescue plan. The righteous wrath of God helps us to truly know the wonderful character of God, to understand who he is, to declare that his judgment and condemnation are completely appropriate, that they're not cruel, but they lead to incredible mercy found in Jesus Christ. Wrath means that God is not indifferent towards you, that he's not just going, I guess you don't matter that much. I'll just let you do your thing. He's not indifferent towards us. His wrath means that he will not abandon us. He won't abandon you to complete despair. He fights for the oppressed. His wrath means that he's not only wrathful against our sin to to say, turn and change, turn toward my, my son, Jesus Christ. It means that he will deal with those who sin against you. It means that we don't have to execute revenge to make ourselves in a right standing place. God puts us in a right standing place. It's for those of us who wrestle with identity, identity, saying, I don't believe people like me. I believe everyone's against me. That incredible whisper of the evil when no one likes you, no one likes what you're about. You're completely reclusive or you have this type of personality. No, God fights for you. And the spirit that he in, that indwells the hearts of God's people is reminding you that, that, that God is, is executing his wrath against wrongs against you. That God is not indifferent towards wrath against our neighbors. When, when we see these injustices go on, that he's, he's not going, well, I only have one type of wrath and it only goes against one type of sin. It goes against all ungodliness and all wickedness. God will not stand by and not deal with it, even though we don't see it fully resolved now. God's wrath actually points us to what's to come. So uh, what does that mean for how we should live and how we should believe now? As we come to a close here, let's always turn to our wonderful, beautiful Savior, Jesus Christ. Christ, the light of the world. Uh, It's helpful to go back to Psalm 75 for a brief moment here. Psalm 75, think about the cup of wrath again that we talked about. God's wrath, it will be poured out. For in the hand of the Lord, there is a cup with foaming wine, well mixed. The imagery we're given here is very unique. Well mixed, and he pours it out. He pours out from it. And all the wicked of the earth, everyone, all the unrighteous, shall drain it down to the dregs. The wicked of the earth, no one will escape, will drink a cup of wrath. But let's hear Christ's prayer. Christ recognized, but I'm going to drink a cup of wrath on all the wicked's behalf. My father, Jesus prays in Matthew 27. Six. This was the prayer in the Garden of Gethsemane. My Father, if it be possible, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not as I will, but as you will. And he continued in his prayer. My Father, if this cannot pass unless I drink it, your will be done. Jesus Christ drinks the cup of wrath for us. In other words, God's wrath is revealed He will deal with sin, but we have an escape route. Christ Jesus delivers. He's a rescuer. Uh, Romans chapter 3 will continue on in, in wrath, but let's turn there quickly, even though I know we'll get to it in a few weeks. Hear this. Romans chapter 3, verse uh, verses 25 or 23 through 25. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. In other words, no one escapes the wrath of God. Everyone's sinned. No one's righteous. Uh, and uh, are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as what? As a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. Uh, I'll just stop there. Propitiation. That word is an incredible, beautiful, <laughs> defined word. It simply means 
that Christ as propitiation has borne all the wrath of God, that he took it all on the cross, that he's taken all of God's wrath revealed against us. And then that leads us to this passage in 1 Thessalonians, another one of Paul's letters, 1 Thessalonians 1. Hear this. Uh, You don't have to turn there, but just listen to it. Verses 2 through 10. We give thanks to God all for always for all of you, constantly mentioning you in our prayers, remembering before our God and our Father your work of faith and labor of love and steadfastness of hope in our Lord Jesus Christ. For we know, brothers and sisters, loved by God, that he has chosen you. Because our gospel came to you not only in word, but also in power and in the Holy Spirit and with full conviction. That's good news. You know what kind of men we proved to be among you for your sake. And you became imitators of us and of the Lord, for you received the word in much affliction with the joy of the Holy Spirit, so that you became an example to all the believers in Macedonia and in Achaia. For not only has the word of the Lord sounded forth from you in Macedonia and Achaia, but your faith in God has gone forth everywhere so that we need not say anything That's interesting. For they themselves report concerning us the kind of reception we had among you and how you turned to God from idols to serve the living and true God and to wait for his son from heaven whom he has raised from the dead, Jesus, who delivers us from the wrath to come. Jesus, our deliverer, delivers us from the wrath to come because he takes on wrath. And all the while, Jesus as deliverer is continuing to give us the announcement, come to me for I will continue to deliver you. Come to me. I am always your protector. I am the one who brings you in unity in the family of God. Thanks be to God for this incredible news. Lord Jesus, we love you. We thank you for your word. And it's in your all-powerful name we pray. Amen.